chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. So uh, this message is entitled Relationships, Character, and Riches. And all these things are tied together. So in the next slide, you'll see um, that uh, over the last chapter, uh, really we've been looking at relationships within the body of Christ. He talks about in verse 1 and 2 uh, how Timothy is to react with older men, um, with younger men, with older women, and with younger women. So kind of runs the gambit. It covers the bases, right? But then he talks about how to take care of widows who the church has taken responsibility over, who's, who's an actual widow that needs to be taken care of by the church and, and who doesn't need to be, someone that can remarry or somebody that has the means to provide for themselves or who has family members that can take care of them. And then in verse 17, he goes on to talk about Timothy's treatment of the elders, those who are called to be in leadership in the church. And, uh, and he talks about making sure that they're paid well and taken care of, um, making sure that, um, that he doesn't treat them with partiality because of their leadership role in the church, that he treats all men equal. And then he talks about not prematurely placing people in leadership because um, by placing someone in leadership who is not living a godly life, who is unrepented of sin that they're harboring, you're essentially partaking in that sin. You're, you're not calling them out on it, and because of that, um, you're condoning it. And so as he continues this theme of talking about relationships, he starts to talk about one that we might think is kind of odd. He says in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his teaching or doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So let's teach and exhort these things. In chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, he talks about bondservants and masters. Now, the, the word bondservant might seem kind of ancient to you, but it's really the word where we get our word slave. But a bond slave is somebody who essentially has given their life to serve someone else in order to be taken care of. In some cases, like in those days, over half of the Roman Empire, remember they're in Ephesus is where their church is, which is part of the Roman Empire, one of the major cities, over 50% of the the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. We're not talking about people that are beaten and forced to serve, but people that are essentially indentured servants. Um, think about, um, have you guys ever watched uh, French, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? What, what was the name of the butler? Jeffrey. Jeffrey. Okay, so, so Jeffrey was an indentured servant. Now, part of him being a servant is that he was taken care of. He probably lived there, right? He was a butler. He, he knew the kids by first name. He took care of them. He did all kinds of things like that. So um, in their day, they had lots of people like that. Actually, an example of that would be Dr. Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, right? But he, many people don't know that though he was educated, he was a doctor. He, di he didn't have his own practice. He didn't work for a bigger practice. He actually was owned by a person to be his personal physician. And so as 
part of being a, a physician for somebody, if you look at the book of Luke and if you look at the, the book of Acts, he starts by saying, I wanted to make it an orderly account to you, O Theophilus. Theophilus owned him. They weren't just like buddies. They didn't, you know, bump it every day. They, they, were, they were guys that, that had a relationship because of his service to them. Now, in our day and age, we don't want to be owned by anybody, especially as Americans, right? I do what I do. I'm my own. I get to, you know, but think about it this way. We are, whether we look at it that way or not, if you work for anybody, you're a bondservant. You have a contract with the person that you work for that I will do and meet your expectations in order to be paid money. And if I don't do that, you don't have to pay me money. Now, we get all upset because we don't get our raise or because of this or that, but in all reality, they don't have to give us a raise. We have agreed to the terms just as they have. They've agreed to pay us this amount, and if they don't ever give us a raise, we've still agreed to work for them and, and not to despise them. So think about it. On a cultural note, they have, in the church at Ephesus, they have people coming to church, and if 50% of the population is a slave, they're slaves to someone, and if the church represents the place that they live in, which hopefully churches do, then what you have is a portion of society. You have probably 50% ideally that are slaves and 50% that are masters. But when they come in the body of Christ, they're all equal, right? And they are to be. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says that. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. So I skim down there. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we're all joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this side, right? Uh, the old hymn. So if that's the case, we're all one in Christ. There's no slave nor free in the body of Christ. But we still live in the world that we live in. People still got to make a living. People still have things to get done. And so there's a servant and a master that go to church together. But as soon as they walk out the doors, though they are both joint heirs with Jesus, we're not in his kingdom yet. So they still have a relationship where one is socially higher than the other. One is in servitude to the other. And everybody serves somebody in all reality, right? We all serve somebody. Uh, whether it's ourselves, you might serve yourself or you might serve somebody else. But in our jobs, we are servants to those that pay us, those that are our immediate um, bosses. So relationships inside the church look one way, and outside of the church, they, they look differently, maybe at work. But what Colossians chapter 3 says, verse 22, is this. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 says this, Paul wrote this same thing. He said, bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not just when they're looking, not with eye service as men pleasers, but actually he says, in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Serve them sincerely in the fear of God. Because if you do that, you'll be blessed. He says, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward 
of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So when you serve your boss properly, when you serve those that are over you properly, you're serving, if you serve as unto Jesus, his standard's going to be way higher than your boss. Maybe you've got a boss you don't respect. Doesn't matter. He doesn't give that disclaimer. He just says, serve your boss as you would be serving Jesus. And it becomes an act of worship. Maybe if our jobs became acts of worship to us, we would actually find more joy in them. I know that I do on the days where I get this right. So another example of this would actually be the book of Philemon. And I won't go over the, the, the story today, but essentially it's a one-chapter letter from Paul. He's in Rome at the time, and he writes on behalf of this man who is a slave that he used to know that's left his master and gone to Rome. And when he gets there to Rome, he just happens to come across the path of Paul the Apostle. And Paul the Apostle, being Paul the Apostle, shares Jesus with them. The slave gets saved, and then Paul says, I want you to go back to your master and serve him. I want you to go back to your slave slavery. Not back to the slavery of sin, back, back to the slavery of your master. Go and submit yourself to him. He's a believer. And so he tells him to go back. But then he also, being Paul the Apostle, writes a letter to this man that he knows, that's the slave's master, and he says, hey, when your slave comes back to you, I don't know the circumstances, but he left you as a runaway slave, but he's coming back to you as a brother in Christ. Therefore, he says, I could require of you that you bring him in, but I'm not going to. But based on the fact that he's a believer, why don't you take him back and treat him like a brother, but he's going to serve you. You lost a slave, but you gained a brother, and he's going to come back as a better servant. And so um, we have an example of this practically. because. Um, but here's the other thing. As believers, many times, if you've ever worked with believers, or if you've ever worked for a believer, what you find out is that you might tend to have a tendency to treat them a little different. And so what he says there in verse 2, he says, those who have believing masters, let them not despise your, because, let them not despise them because they're, believe, they're brethren. Don't treat them differently. Don't be like, hey, we're buddy-buddy. Be their servant. Be the one that works for them. Don't, treat, don't expect them to treat you better because you're a brother in Christ. Actually, expect them to treat you equally with all the other employees. He says, uh, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers. Serve them well and be because they're believers and because they're beloved. So he says, count them worthy of honor so that God is not blasphemed. Many times Christians, the, most of the Christians that I've ever worked with, just being blunt, have been some of the worst employees. Because we know, a, we know about grace, and so we just kind of stroll in, and we're like, hey, here I am. And we, we don't work hard. We actually expect our bosses to, to just let us do whatever. And, and then we, when we treat them that way, uh, they despise Jesus. Because we're, we, we act like Jesus is just okay with us being whoever we are. But Jesus has standards for us. He gives us grace. He saves us. He knows that we won't be perfect. But as his representatives here on earth, we ought to be the hardest workers that exist. We really ought to be the best. Not so that we can get promoted, 
but so that God would be glorified in how we work. We should be diligent. We shouldn't be servants as if, you know, oh, the boss is looking, I better work hard. We should be serving good all the time. They should know that they can trust us. Think about the story of Joseph. Joseph in the book of Genesis was actually a slave, and every time he was put into a new place of slavery, even though he was sold into slavery by his own brothers, he wasn't bitter, he served in the fear of God. And when he served in the fear of God, every time, not just some of the time, every time, his masters were like, hey, let's put him in charge of something. We can trust him. When he was in jail, as one who was accused of trying to take Potiphar's wife, the jailer said, hey, you take better care of this thing than I do. Why don't you take stewardship over the jail? And they didn't watch him closely. They just let him do what he did because he feared God. They, they recognized that he wasn't doing what he was doing to have integrity just when his boss was looking, but that he was always the same kind of character. And Daniel was the same way. If you look at the, the book of Daniel, you see that Daniel was given in multiple kingdoms. When the kingdom got overthrown, they'd get rid of all the advisors and they would keep Daniel because they recognized they could trust him. That's a big deal. If those who are over us recognize they can trust us, even when they're not looking, they'll give you more. They'll put you in spots that you never thought you would ever be. And so he says, teach and exhort these things. Serve them to benefit them. Uh, if nothing else, just because they're the Lord's and they're loved by God, why would, not, why would we not love them? So next slide, verse three. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud and knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. He says, from these types, withdraw yourself. <clears throat> so Jesse, if you can give me the next slide, please. False teachers is what he's talking about here. Um, and he starts out by saying, you can recognize false teachers by this. Anyone who teaches words otherwise and does not consent to the wholesome words of Jesus. He says anyone who rejects or contradicts basically what he's taught from chapter 5 verse 1 through chapter 6 verse 2. And those who reject the words of Jesus. Now what's interesting about these teachers is they won't come out and say, I disagree with Jesus and really I'm teaching something else. What they'll do is they'll act like they're followers of Jesus, and they, they really won't be. In chapter 4, verse 1 of this same letter, he writes, The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. They will give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. They will speak lies and hypocrisy, having their own consciences seared with a hot iron. He, he says that they will speak in hypocrisy and their consciences, because they have continued in some hidden sin, their consciences will be seared with a hot iron. They will be liars. They will be false teachers and many of them won't even know it. They'll think that they're doing the right thing, but they will reject the teaching of Jesus. And so he says, 
to Timothy, he writes, if anyone teaches doctrines that are otherwise and doesn't consent to the wholesome words, even the words of Jesus, and to the teachings that accord with a godly life, look at this, they're proud and they know nothing. They're obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. And I've, I've met people like this. Um, when you talk to them about godliness, when you talk to them about fruit being produced in their lives, they'll argue with you, and then they'll start to break down words in the Greek and the Hebrew, and they'll, they have all these justifications for why the sin that they're doing is really okay. They'll, they'll justify themselves. They'll be proud. They will not have humility. And he says uh, it, it, they'll, they'll wrangle over uh, words, and they'll have corrupt minds, and they will be destitute of the truth. And look at this. It says there in verse 5, they will suppose that godliness is a means to gain. And Timothy says, if you meet anybody like this, he doesn't say argue with them. He says, withdraw yourself from them. Don't even interact with them because they, you're not going to convince them otherwise. So don't have fellowship with them. So as we look at this, we see the characteristics of false teachers. Uh, they're proud. They're not humble. They're without knowledge. They love to dispute debatable things. They just, they just like to argue. Now, I hate arguing. I hate controversy. Sometimes an argument is something that needs to be talked about. There are hills to die on when it comes to faith. There are doctrines that cannot be compromised. But someone who loves to argue, I don't got no time for that. And I've met many. But look at this. They see godliness as a way to gain. Financially and in power. Now, I was thinking about this passage this morning, and I wasn't sure how to... I was looking for an example. But turn with me to John chapter 12. Jesus had somebody like this in his life too. <clears throat> John chapter 12, verse 1. It says there, Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to a place called Bethany, which is just a, a quick walk from Jerusalem. And actually, if you go to Bethany, it's like you cross the valley east of the Temple Mount, you cross up over the Mount of Olives and it's on the other side. So Bethany's not that far away. And Lazarus, was, who, who, excuse me, before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who was who, was who had been, man, what does that say? Where Lazarus was who had been dead. Okay. Whom he had risen from the dead. So that's where Lazarus was. I got it now. I really did read the passage this morning. Um, so there they made him a supper, and Martha served. Think about this gathering. Not only is Jesus showing up, but you get to gather with these people that have been personally impacted by the Lord. And that's what fellowship is. They're getting together to hang out with Jesus, not because of anything other than they're just thankful for him. They love him. Why? Well, guess who's sitting at the table with them? Lazarus. He was dead for three days. Like if they got nothing else to talk about, hey, check it out, Lazarus is still alive. Again, you know, like here he is. How many, how many of us get to sit down with people that have literally been raised from the dead? Now, whether you realize it or not, you're hanging out with somebody that was spiritually dead. And Jesus has raised me up. But here we are, 
uh, he, it says, um, there they made him a supper. There wasn't pomp and circumstance. They just got together to have a meal. That's fellowship. And then it says, Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So she's giving something to Jesus that is costly. <clears throat> now, keep in mind that this isn't just like, you know, uh, some sort of like Old Spice. This isn't a bottle of Old Spice you can go buy at Walmart. This is a costly oil. This oil is so costly that I would compare it to whatever it is you think that a, a good 401k would look like. This was their retirement in those days. They wouldn't invest in the stock market. They wouldn't invest in mass mutual or whatever the 401k. They wouldn't get life insurance. What they would do, they would over time save up enough money to buy a jar of this spikenard. And they would set it essentially like we would take money in the olden days and they'd stuff it in their mattress. This is what I'm going to use when I get retired. And they would put it up on a shelf and they would never think about it until something happened where they had no choice or when they get to retirement age and they needed money. And what they would do at that point is they would sell it to someone else. It was like investing in gold or silver or something like that. But this is her retirement. This is everything. But here this woman is, she recognizes that it's more important to praise Jesus than to store up in her barns for the future. So she takes the most costly thing in her life and she breaks it. You couldn't just take the cork out and put it back in. She broke the jar, poured it out on the feet of Jesus. This is not just an offering. This is lavish love. She anoints his feet. But notice the response. One of his disciples, verse 4, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? See, that seems like a really good thought, right? That's such a waste. We should have sold it. But notice the next verse. This he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. He, did, he didn't care about the poor. This act, this words, this sentence here, it's, it's an act of righteousness that's really a cloak for covetousness. What he was saying was something that's true. They could help the poor. And, and Jesus goes on to say that, hey, the, the poor are always going to be with you. I care about them, but she's done something that you guys don't even recognize the significance of. In one of the gospel accounts, it says, what she's done here will be recounted to the ages. And we have it here in scripture, right? So this was an offering that wasn't in vain. It wasn't wasteful. Hey, she was worshiping the king of kings. But what Judas says reveals something, that there can be people around us that say all the right religious stuff, but really it can be a cloak for covetousness. Now, we can throw stones at TV preachers, right? There are people on TV saying all kinds of stuff and offering a blessing, you know, but but in all reality, not all of them. I will not throw them all under the bus. But there are many who really just want to gain prominence and power and money. And, and they'll take every bit you'll give them. 
but it's a cloak for covetousness. They just want, they see an act of godliness as a means to gain what their worldly desire is. And so he points this out. He says, have no fellowship with them. He says, from such withdraw yourself. Now verse 6, next slide. Verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Uh, One man that I read wrote, um, we brought nothing into this world, and that's why we can't take anything out. I thought that was an interesting way to put it. He said, And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. And pierce themselves through with many sorrows. And so he says here, in this set of verses, godliness with contentment is gain. He says these men desire to gain, and so they show acts of righteousness in order to gain. But he says if we can have godliness, if we can have God's character infused into our lives, and we can be content with what he provides for us, whatever it is, we all want more but do we really need it? And can we be content with the things that we just need? You know, food and clothing. Now, some argue that he doesn't even mention, he doesn't mention shelter. But then there's the other side that says food and clothing. The word for clothing there is actually covering, which you could assume would be clothing and a place to live. Now, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, told the disciples as he was calling them to follow him, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He didn't have a place to live. He didn't ha- I mean, if the Son of Man doesn't have a place to live, I don't know that that means anything other than, do we deserve a place to live? But that's all semantics. What I want to point out is he, he's talking about basic needs. He's talking about food, which is necessary to stay alive, and clothing. We need to be covered. So he says, with these things we shall be content. We can be contentment, we can have gain. Interestingly enough, we many times want to gain, and as a result of that, we kind of see that we can't be content with just what we have. You know, I did this with motorcycles, and I probably will later. But like, I bought my first motorcycle. It's a 1987 Honda Rebel. Everybody's had a Honda Rebel. It looks like a little Harley, but you get on that thing, and you're like, wow, this thing is not a Harley. I feel like I'm on a scooter. You know, I feel it. And even me, I got short legs, and I was like, I could use a little leg room here. You know, but you can get one for like less than a hundred or a thousand bucks. Maybe even less if you find an 87 like I did. So I get the thing, and I'm riding it, and I'm like, you know, I could get a little bit bigger one, a little louder, a little more rumble, a little more cool factor, a little faster. You know, I want to be able to pass some Geo Metro on the highway. You know, so you get the bigger one. So I got a 600 VLX. I loved it. Drove to Chicago one time, four gears, no big deal, right? Except you're going 70, and all you hear is, and my mom graciously rode all the way to Chicago with me on it, so she's the adventuresome one. Um, But anyway, later I got rid of it, and I got a different one, and that's just kind of how it goes, but we always want a bigger motorcycle, right? Uh, Maybe yours isn't my motorcycles. Maybe yours is, you know, a TV, 
you know, maybe yours is bigger truck, bigger tires, you know. Uh, my point is, is that contentment is something we struggle with. Interestingly enough, we have more than most nations in the world, you know. Uh, you cannot flip the TV on without a commercial saying, hey, what you have is not enough. That's every campaign, by the way. What you have is not enough. You deserve better, right? That's what the world tells us, and we believe it, and then we get on Facebook Marketplace, and then we get on, Saint, on Craigslist, if anybody does that anymore. And there's all of these ways to shop for things that we got to have, right? And, and yet, in the meantime, we got food, got a place to stay. If you got your health, you got your health. I mean, we've got a lot. You don't have to drive far to go to a doctor. Man, if you can be content with what you have right now, it actually relaxes you a little bit. I've enjoyed recently selling my stuff and then sitting in the yard and not taking care of it because I don't have to take care of it anymore. It's kind of nice. Isn't it interesting? The more stuff you get, the more work you have to do. You know, I've been playing around with the idea of getting a camper and every part of me is going, man, it'd be fun to go camping. The other part of me is like, hey, we can set up a tent in the backyard because I don't want to maintain the camper. I don't want to take the black snake out of it when it's been sitting there all summer. You know, I, I, all the things that go along with stuff, it, it does promise happiness and, and you will enjoy it. Nothing wrong with owning a camper. It's not sin. But many times it, it promises relaxation and actually costs more work. It's not a net gain, if you will, if you, in accounting terms. So he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. But then he says in verse 9, he says that, well, I'll go on in my notes instead of skipping ahead. Verse 17 and 18, he writes about uh, those who are in leadership in the church. He says the laborer is worthy of his wages in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 5. So wages shouldn't be the motivation to serve, though. Anyone who is in leadership, anyone who's a Bible teacher like myself, if, if the only motivation is money, it's going to be really disappointing, you know? Not because of any other reason than it's never going to be enough. But interestingly enough, the one who we follow, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, says, uh, for, the, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I think I went over wealth does not bring contentment. Wealth doesn't last. Uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment, what does it look like? And he says food and clothing. So next slide. So Paul warns Timothy in verse 9 and 10. And I hope you guys can see the image on the upper right hand of the screen. You see these guys in like, you know, like uh, <laughs> these cloaks. And they're holding out this fishing pole. It's essentially money. And you got one guy that's reaching for it. And you got the other guy, he's already gone. The guy that's reaching for it doesn't even see the guy that's gone. He's completely blind to the fact that this isn't going to go well. People have gone before you and done the same thing. So let me ask you, are you one of those that has believed the phrase, money is the root of all evil? Money is the root of all evil, is it? Many people say it as if it's a Bible verse. Uh, the, it, and it's confusing because sometimes you feel like money's evil. If I didn't have to have money, I wouldn't have to go work. You know, if I didn't have to worry about paying the bills, I wouldn't be stressed out and yelp at my kids. You know, I, I've, I've said that to myself, you know. But what he says there is the love of money is the root 
of all kinds of evil. He says in verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts. They drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For which, notice this, he says, some, because of the love of money, have strayed from the faith in their greediness. They've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So loving money is the root or the source of all kinds of evil. Greed, right? He says, those who have a desire to be rich expose themselves to temptations that don't have an effect on those who are content with what they've been given. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, speaking to Jesus, he said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So Jesus responded to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And the young man responded to him and said, which ones? Interesting question, right? He, he just said commandment, keep them. Which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth, so what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect you want to be mature, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Notice the young man's response. When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So I read something this morning and I thought it was interesting and actually I read it yesterday morning. That a little screen capture. C.S. Lewis wrote this. One of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness that money can give, and in so doing, fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent upon God. thought that was good. It's not that money is evil, it's that trusting in money and loving money is evil. And really, that's not even evil. It's the root of all kinds of evil. Because if you trust in money, you'll do anything to get it. And if you'll do anything to get it, that means that you'll actually ignore God completely and recognize that He is the giver of all good gifts. He's the provider. And so this young man speaks to Jesus. He's in the right spot. And then Jesus tells him what he needs to do. Not because all people need to sell all their possessions, by the way. This young man was asking for a specific prescription for himself, and Jesus gave him a specific word for himself. And the young man did not go, oh, cool, I've been looking for what to do. He said, I'll do anything, but I won't do that. <laughs> well, meatloaf for you this morning. I, you're lucky I didn't sing the rest of it. I could go on and on about meatloaf. So, he counsels, not that kind of meatloaf, the other kind. So he goes on and he says, those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation 
and a snare. You know what a snare is? They don't do them much anymore, but you can set up snares. You can make them out of sticks. Uh, you can make them out of those metal ones. I don't know if those are called snares, but they're traps. You set them in the woods, you tie them to the ground, and then you wait for the right animal to come along and put a little bait on there. And those animals, because they desire the bait, they get trapped, and they get pierced, and they get destroyed. They, they essentially, because of their love for something that's not God, it becomes a trap to them, and, and it kills them. And uh, maybe it doesn't kill you uh, physically, but it will kill you spiritually. He says it, it many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. And think about that word perdition. Judas Iscariot was called the son of perdition. He was drowned in perdition. He did not repent. Because of his love for money, he sold the Son of Man over to the hands of sinners, and he betrayed life. He says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and the greediness. But you, verse 11, last slide, but you. What I didn't say in there is that having money is not a sin. Having money is something that God provides for us, and we're able to then uh, use it to glorify him. If you have money, don't feel condemned. God's given it to you so that you can use it for his purposes. Uh, the problem is, is that many times when people have a lot of money, they want more money, and they don't use it for the Lord's purposes. So let's see here. Verse 11, he says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness. He says, flee temptation, uh, flee the love of money, uh, flee youthful lusts. He's going to say in chapter or, uh, 1 Timothy 2, but then he says, flee these things and pursue righteousness. Righteousness is a word that we can use to describe character. Character, personal integrity. He says, pursue godliness, conduct that reveals Jesus, godlikeness. Pursue that. If you're not like Jesus, pursue being more like Jesus. Faith, uh, faithfulness, be dependable. Uh, I think I heard somebody say our greatest ability is dependability. We, he can be depended upon. We pursue and we show the character of God. He says, pursue love. Uh, on the next slide, Jesse, the word love there is actually the word agape that they use in the New Testament. And it's this kind of love that's not lust, the desire to have something from somebody. It's not eros, which was the word for erotic love. Uh, it's not phileo, which is like brotherly love, but it's actually agape love. And this kind of love is willing to sacrifice for the sake of benefiting others. So pursue love. I'll tell you what, if you try to love people agape love, you won't have a whole lot of time for a whole lot of else. It, it's a consuming love. Patience. Some of your Bibles might say endurance. Uh, pursue patience. When it's tough, keep going gentleness pursue gentleness another translation says meekness uh, meekness is being willing to be led by the holy spirit meekness is the idea of a one uh, of a horse and a horse you know if you've ever stood next to one they're so muscular and strong but that horse when it's not bridled or able to respond to the bit is not meek at all it's dangerous but when we, having the power of the Lord in us, are meek and willing to be led by Him, uh, we have complete power under control. 
Like if your engine was just sitting out on the ground running, all kinds of power, just revving it up, but it's not harnessed into a way that it can be useful, so it's just all kinds of noise. But once you hook it up to a transmission that hooks up to a drive shaft, that hooks up to the tires, and then you have a computer that controls that engine, you put that thing in gear, it does what you tell it to do, and then it's useful to others. So he says, pursue gentleness, pursue meekness, and pursue God himself. Live for eternity where true riches can be gained. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. This is our last reference, a promise. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily, look at that, that word again, ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and because of that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He suffered the cross. He endured. He ran the race to finish. And because of that, he was not ensnared by sin and the desire to sin. And because of that, he now sits down at the right hand of the glory. And we too, trusting in him, can do the same thing. Our goal is not so much to gain here, although many times God provides for us in specific ways, but our goal is to finish the race and be with God in heaven for eternity. And, and it starts now. Eternity starts now. So, as you can see, we talked about relationships, slaves and masters. We talked about, um, you know, the, the fact that character matters to the Lord. And we talked about riches and the right relationship with riches. So, let me ask you this morning, where are you in your relationship to these things? Where are your motives at? The Lord's really been straining through my motives this week. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? Are you doing them for my purposes? Or are you doing them as a cloak for something else that you're trying to gain? Uh, I tell you what, when I try to do something as a cloak to gain something, and then I don't get that something, I'm disillusioned. I'm depressed. I'm bummed out. But when I can do it for the right reasons, I actually have joy in it. I become content with what God's given me to do no matter what area of life it's in. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for sorting through our motives. Lord, maybe some of us have been uh, lacking joy, lacking contentment, hoping to gain the next thing, and then when we get it, we find out that it really wasn't the thing that we needed to give us contentment. And so, Father, each one of us have areas of our lives where we need to gain contentment. We need to gain proper perspective. So would you please sort through the things that are robbing us of joy, robbing us of contentment, and prune them from our lives. Give us the ability to see what it is you've called us to do. Help us to try to do it with all our heart. And when our hearts fall short, would you please remove the things that are hindering us? Help us to lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily can ensnare us and rob us of, of a fruitful season. And Lord, as you remove them, give us the grace to, to be okay with that. 
We love you, Lord. We know that we need this word. Each one of us has a different spot we're at in life. Would you please uh, apply it to our lives and give us feet that are willing to take action in whatever it is you're calling us to do. We love you, and uh, we know that we're works in progress. Lord, thank you for your patience. In Jesus' name, amen.